1: All right. Well, let's figure out where the money at least is proposed to go. The budget, it is always something to behold, the federal budget. Uh, let's get into it. Justin Singh, White House reporter for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from our D.C. Bureau. Justin, great to have you with Taylor and myself. So tell us
2: about this latest budget from the president. Sure. So the president uh, has rolled out his plan that would spend $4.8 trillion next year. Uh, we'd see an increase in military spending even above some of the historic levels that we've seen uh, over the beginning of the president's term. So that that goes up to around $740.5 billion next year. Uh, there's some goodies uh, for policy priorities of the president, $2 billion for his wall, a, right. a 12% increase for uh, NASA to go to the moon and Mars. but deep cuts we see to social safety net programs, lots of uh, cuts to things like the Environmental Protection Agency, the State Department, you know, traditional sort of boogeymen of the Republican Party Mm -hmm. and things that the president has, has railed against on the campaign trail.
3: Justin, Jason correctly pointed out when we were coming into this segment that it is the proposed budget Remind us again, what is the process from proposed to coming into law? Who gets final say? How does this all work?
2: Yeah, so it is definitely worth taking this with with a major grain of salt, because this is basically just a PR document that the White House puts out Um, it, it. Informs I think what Republicans on Capitol Hill will prioritize, but really lawmakers are the ones who have the final say in in what gets spent uh where things get appropriated so you know while the president proposes some really dramatic cuts, particularly to to those social safety net programs, none of them are likely to become law, especially because Uh, with Democrats in in charge of the House, it's going to be a push and pull between congressional appropriators. And and what we've seen in in prior years is that uh, the president might get some of the defense spending increases he asked for, but that will only come if Democrats are able to protect and grow uh, the domestic spending priorities that they have.
1: And Justin, tell us uh, sort of where the most active discussions will be? What will people be fighting the most about between the Republicans, between the administration and and presumably the Democrats in in Congress?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot here in this budget that the Democrats would sort of outwardly reject, but I think uh, what might be most helpful is to look at at the things that could end up becoming law. So there's a lot of um, detail on uh, defense spending uh, that the the White House is pursuing that Mm -hmm. the Republicans could adopt, uh, particularly new spending uh, on securing and improving the nation's nuclear arsenal. Uh, Similarly, I think some of uh, the proposals that the president has for health care for paid family leave are things that he's going to talk a lot about on the campaign trail. And then if Republicans come into office or are able to to sort of uh, secure the White House again, take back the House, there'll be areas that they're going to push for uh, next year.
3: Justin, how much fodder does this give the Democratic candidates out as they go into New Hampshire and they take a look at this for talking points?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen already a lot of candidates kind of hop on this. You know, Bernie Sanders, Mike Bloomberg have have already put statements out saying, uh, you know, these are uh, direct attacks on uh, the types of programs like Medicare and Medicaid that President Trump had pledged on the campaign trail that he wouldn't touch. And so uh, I'm sure that the Democrats are going to be mining through this, looking at things like cuts to Sesame Street or, the corporation for public broadcasting and uh... more sort of substantial ones involving health care that, that they're going to uh, want to highlight to voters. Right. And We should point out that uh, Mike
1: Bloomberg, uh, the aforementioned, is the owner of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Radio and is, in fact, a Democratic, uh, pursuing the Democratic nomination for president. So what do we hear next, Justin? Where does it um, where does it go? Not just rhetorically. We know people are going to be, as you just very rightly pointed out in response to Taylor's questions, people will be feasting on this for some time to come, but when do we actually see things make their way to the floor?
2: Yeah, so I think it's going to be the the congressional appropriators aren't going to really Go into this process for uh, a couple months yeah. at least, and and they will likely reauthorize kind of current spending levels until after the election. So, uh, I think the big discussions are going to be pushed off until after after voters have their say at the polls. Uh,
1: and any view of New Hampshire from down where you are, uh, the president obviously weighing in more and more when he uh, has time with reporters on various candidates here and there, uh, and obviously still not very happy uh, as we heard in Bob Moon's newcap. Uh, newscast a little while ago about Mitt Romney.
2: Yeah, it's President Trump himself actually headed up there this evening. Um, uh, he'll do a rally in the state, and, and the White House has been really sort of eagerly promoting the fact that there's been a long line uh, of people waiting out in the cold for the president. New Hampshire is a, a state where. Republicans feel like they can play a little bit of offense uh, in this upcoming election. And we know that the president, uh, he just did this a week ago in Iowa, uh, sees these, the, the big uh, voting events as a chance for him to see some headlines and, and interject himself into the political process. So I'm sure it's going to be a uh, sort of fiery speech from the president tonight as he tries to gain some eyeballs and some votes in New Hampshire.
1: I think that is a very safe bet. Justin Sink, thank you so much. White House reporter for Bloomberg. Joining us on the phone from our bureau in the nation's capital.
2: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Let's get into the business of real estate now. Natalie Wong is here with us, U.S. commercial real estate reporter for Bloomberg here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So a big deal. $3.6 billion, uh, Natalie. Simon buying Taubman. These two have been sort of circling around each other for a while. Why and how did they finally get together?
4: Yes, thank you. It is definitely a really, really big deal. You have two of the top high-quality mall REITs that are joining together to kind of fight the growing unease in this space. I mean, they've been trying to make a deal work for quite some time now. We know they were in talks at the end of last year, and Simon's tried to buy Taubman before, but I think it's really an indication of the growing pressures on the retail industry. And, you know, the retail apocalypse that is kind of trickling out to impact some of the higher luxury mall operators that haven't nearly been hit as hard before. Natalie,
3: I'm so glad that you brought up the retail apocalypse because that was my next question. I have been hearing about this so-called retail apocalypse for a decade. Amazon is not a new company. We've been talking about this for years and years. What do we mean that all these retailers are finally just now struggling? Why haven't they been able to repurpose their stores at this point by now?
4: You're right, it has been a long time coming and we've heard about e-commerce and the unraveling of the impact on physical brick and mortar stores for a very long time now. And mainly we've seen most of that hit some of the lower quality malls in the suburbs because America just had a glut, frankly speaking, of these shopping centers. But some of the more high quality operators like Brookfield, Simon and Topman have been doing well in terms of you know, cutting back on the properties they don't need, making sure they have the right tenants. But yet we're still seeing fallout continue to happen. We're seeing Forever 21 filing for bankruptcy. We're seeing some of the other major retailers that previously had been doing good a few years earlier starting to take a hit, and that's inevitably affecting some of these larger operators.
1: And so deal-making done here? Do we think there are more things, uh, more consolidation coming?
4: It's hard to say. I mean, there's already been a lot of consolidation in 2018. We saw the consolidation (coughs) of uh four major retailers into two large companies if simon and Tobin, you know if this deal is successful that's yet to be seen i mean today we saw Tobman's shares rise way above the deal price after the news came out, which could indicate that investors might think another bidder could emerge. But Interesting. I have spoken to some of the read analysts here, like Lindsay Dutch, who mentions that it's probably an unlikely scenario, largely because there really isn't any other competitor out there who is capable of taking over. And not to mention, Simon has already tried to take over Tobin, and they probably wouldn't be doing this again mm. if they didn't know that they could.
1: Right. Really Natalie, good point.
3: Natalie, What does the future of the mall look like? I'm thinking we repurpose it to being a gym a rock climbing center a warehouse to get us in that shipping and e-commerce what we call the very uh, hard last mile what does the future of the mall actually look like
4: That's exactly right, I mean I've been talking to a lot of analysts who said all of these operators have to rethink what the mall is and essentially it's about getting people to these malls and getting traffic to these malls and that could mean having theater there, having entertainment complexes like we're seeing with the uh, big American mall and And that could also mean having more dining options out there to attract people. It's about creating an experience because people – the reality is you can just buy whatever you want from your couch, right? So what is going to make people want to get up and go to these malls? That's what people have to rethink.
1: Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And, you know, you point out the American dream over there in uh, New Jersey. I mean, I think about, you know, I live in the Burbs. People still go to the malls to some extent, but they are, you know, going to eat or going to, you know – some sort of uh, entertainment type of thing. Do you go to the malls, Taylor?
3: I think Natalie said it best. It is a quote experience, yeah. which is the buzzword for all millennials out here. We don't want consumer items. We want the experience. Right. And I actually do believe that that will be the future of driving the foot traffic back into these the malls.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's right. All right. Big deal. Uh, today, we really appreciate the context from Natalie Wong, US commercial real estate reporter. For Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: We're talking about Coco Melon. 2.5 billion views a month. If Carol Masser were here, she would say, Whoa. Mark Bergen, he was the first to meet this guy. He's never given a press interview before, first journalist, I should say, uh, to meet this guy on the record. He's a tech reporter for Bloomberg, joins us from our 960 studio in San Francisco, right next. To Taylor Riggs, Joel Weber is right next to me. He's the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Mark, Coco Melon, wow, this is a phenomenon.
5: Uh, yeah, my white whale for a while. Um, Coco Melon has it's it's a phenomenon. It's it's a great, amazing story um, because in in part because it's become a phenomenon in the past, uh, you know, under three years. Um, so uh, this guy Jay and his wife were making these YouTube videos from the actual first year that YouTube was ever. Uh, invented they posted their first video a month before Google acquired YouTube uh, in 2006 and they've been for a decade were making these nursery rhymes and like basic basic animation they moved to more 3D animation in 2017 like a number of factors they just exploded adding like their growth just doubled in the number of, of views uh, and all at the same time right you know YouTube had this policy of we don't have anyone under 13 on their site uh, but yet this demonstrates that uh, clearly a content made for kids and, and for young kids in particular was just wildly successful but, successful on YouTube but you know
1: mark uh, there's plenty of other people who can kind of recognize that too what was the secret sauce that made Cocoa Melon uh, so rich
5: uh, you know, I think one factor, you know, we met him, he is certainly, it seems like a perfectionist, right? he spent almost two months on making these animated videos. Um, so he does put a lot of time and dedication in, into the craft, and, and you can tell, you know, the the full screen, which is the agency they work with, so they estimate that there are about like dozens of channels that just lift rip off Cocomelon uh, Coco and post it as their own. Those get tens of millions of views. So there's this there and you could pass this huge um, ecosystem of people making sort of content farm animation. And clearly there is some care and concern put in, behind this and, and some amount of craft you, you may or may not agree with if they have a lot of educational principles, if you find the songs really annoying, um, but clearly there are there are children out there who love them, and this is business, right? Big business now. Like how much money do they bringing in every month? Uh, they wouldn't share the revenue. Their estimates that it's in the high end of eleven point three million a month. Uh, mind you, that was before. So what happened uh, last month is YouTube is now based on their settlement with the FTC, uh, no longer running uh, personal ads on videos mm-hmm. that are made for kids, and so all of CoComelon in that case no longer has it. So they said that there's been uh, an impact. You know, we have in our reporting, it's fifty to sixty percent uh, of revenue down, uh, and so that's part of the reason I think why they are moving now their story so they're looking at the toy deals yeah this um, is the, the news element Like, so they've they got to diversify merch. right Like, what, so what all are they looking to do yeah, so right now they announced a partnership. Uh, there's Jazzwares, which runs this company called Wicked Cool Toys. So they'll be making a Wicked Cool uh, plush toys for the Coco Melon characters coming out later this year. Uh, they've been releasing albums. Um, unclear how well they are doing, but uh, so parents now, if they want if their kid wants to listen to the Coco Melon songs on a, on a car ride or on the plane, they can do that. Uh, they were talking about full length movie. I mean, you know, they the they have been very. This channel has. Beyond just being anonymous, the creator has been very, very, very conservative and reluctant. He's turned down a bunch of offers. You see a lot more children's um, creators on YouTube going into merchandise, going to Walmart deals, to to all sorts of expansion. Ryan's toy reviews being the the perfect example. So there is this multi million dollar opportunity to sort of springboard off of YouTube.
3: You know, Joel and Jason. I think what we sometimes miss out here, being in San Francisco, is. The intensity of the zeitgeist and I'm going to steal that word from Mr. Tom Keene, yeah. about how important children's he stole privacy it from me, is.:
5: By the way, but yeah, yeah.
3: Sure. <laughs> So you have, of course, as we've talked about, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Mark, big picture for Google. How do they? help support and get revenue from some of these child stars, while also navigating that very delicate situation of more pressure about wanting protections for some of these underage kids?
4: Mm
5: -hmm. Uh, That's a really good question. It's something that YouTube's been struggling with and Google writ large. Um, One option, they have YouTube Kids, which is the app uh, that's that's especially made. Their latest numbers were about 20 million, uh, which is just a a small fraction of of overall youtube.com so they're 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 trying to push more and more people to youtube um youtube kids which is you know much more privacy safe much more sort of content safe and rich they're talking about coming out with new tools for youtube creators to make money whether it's selling merchandise um whether it's having subscriptions for for big fans and uh and And that's been slow coming. You know, the merchandise offer brings a whole different type of regulatory hurdles, where you have sponsored content, and you have to decide. You know, YouTube and Google has to decide, with with, along with with regulators, uh, how much, what's a what appropriate commercial messaging for kids under six years old. This is sort of terrain where they have not
1: been regulated like like broadcast television, and that's finally changing. And so, Mark, is there a sense that all of the big rivals uh, are? Trying to get in on JJ's turf? What are they doing? And, and is he feeling it?
5: Uh, he certainly has not. He's been very dismissive so far. I think, you know, he talked about how he's just been turning down um, outside investment. Um, I'm almost certain that he's had, you know, uh, whether it's Netflix, Amazon, uh, maybe even Disney kind of knocking on his door, right? Um, so, you know, this YouTube has, is pretty well positioned because they have, they have all these, org, you know, their, their own creators, yeah. um, right, that have sort of like Google's IP in some sense. Um, but, you know, see, I mentioned Ryan's Toy Review, which is the, one of the biggest um, unboxing and kids' channels in the world. They, he recently had a deal with Nickelodeon, his partnership with Walmart. Uh, because of the constraints of YouTube, you're seeing a lot of the big stars trying to sort of step away, um, which that could be a big problem for, for Google. Unboxing videos taking over, you know, everything is sort of... Like, yeah. I don't know. That's not where I expect the world to go, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: I, I the unboxing. I don't get it. But you got get a kid, Coco Melon that
0: figure
2: into
1: your I life a lot. Coco Melon, yet. yeah, you will We got won't some you? like yeah, we will now. We we're like throwback to like Hat Palmer, and uh, I don't know. Is that too is yep. that too old for you? Lost me there.
2: All right, that's all yeah. you.
1: Well, you're a young hipster parent. I'm an old guy. All right, uh, Mark Bergen, thank you so much, tech reporter for Bloomberg. This is a great story and. I know it is being well consumed by parents out there who are either going, "Oh yeah, I know coco melon," or, "Oh sweet lord, let me not never discover coco melon." Uh, he was out in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco alongside Taylor Riggs.
2: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio.
3: I want to bring in Andrew Brown. He is an editorial director of the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. Prior to joining Bloomberg, he was the China editor, senior columnist, and correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. And I mentioned China because that is so much of where Andrew's background is. And so, Andrew, it's great to have you at moments like this when we talk about. Um, sort of the nationalism and what is going on in China as you saw the early days of this Wuhan coronavirus start to spread. I really want you to give us sort of the tone on the ground if you had this uh, 34-year-old doctor start to notice this virus, tried to speak out against it, and I think he was silenced and sort of shut down. How much of that is sort of just the tone in China that that is just the way things are give us the tone on the ground
6: right so uh, you know you know you as you say you've got this doctor li wan liang Early on in the crisis, early on in this epidemic, he's starting to see this incredibly disturbing pattern of human-to-human infections. So he jumps onto a private WeChat group uh, with other medical professionals, and he's putting into this WeChat group medical and scientific facts that he thinks his colleagues should know. Now, you say, you know, they, they, they shut him down, they silenced him. They didn't just silence him they actually take him down to the police station and it's like something out of the cultural revolution. They now want to humiliate him. They want to get him to admit that he has made a mistake. They want him to recant, right? So th- this, is, this is now the impulse of the party isn't just uh, to silence him. It's to punish him and so you know the point i'm i i I think the 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 wider point here is that censorship in china isn't just a china problem it's a global problem you know and you're looking at in a in a globally connected economy you have a country china which has open borders to flows of people and goods and closes its border to information and data, you know, and this is a a huge anomaly now, um, and it's all of our risks. So, you know, when Li Liang's warning uh, is, is 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 ignored, uh, and he's not just he's punished. I mean, this means that the global community doesn't have access to the information that it needs, and we see. So this is and this is the this is the impulse. The interesting thing now is the public backlash right. that you're seeing against this. And what does that backlash look like, and how will it play? out? Out, in your estimation you now have a national conversation in china about freedom of speech mm. in a way that you haven't had really since 1989 and the pro democracy protest then Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen uh, Square. You know, th- th- this is this is not this is not a you know pol- simply a political issue. Now, this is a life and death issue for Chinese people, and it's taken on a real urgency. Um, and it, by the way, this 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 strikes right at the heart of Xi Jinping's political agenda, which is information control, right. and it works in 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 several different ways. It's not just suppressing information; it's positive. Positively expecting the media and everybody associated with the media to generate uh, positive news, good news, they call positive energy, all right, which in this case obviously has worked against the interest of getting the scientific facts out and in the in- against the interest of transparency, which of course is critical to controlling an epidemic and, you know, to ensuring that you don't have panic.
3: Andy... I think it's one thing to be having a conversation about it and like you said this is the beginning of a broader conversation but it's one thing to actually create change what are the real odds of creating change within china
6: you know the communist party uh despite what people think um, can be um, when it's presented with a real challenge to its legitimacy or indeed even to its existence, has found ways to modify its policies, its behavior, has found ways to adapt. Um, you know, with, with so many people in China now um, uh, furious, I mean just raw anger, they're sitting at home, they're stewing on this, they haven't been out, a lot of people don't have an income, you know, the uh, factories are going back to work, but schools aren't reopening, what do I do do I do with my kids, what about childcare? I mean, this is really hitting home to people in a very, very personal way. Um, and I, 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 I honestly believe it, it, it cannot help. Uh, the Communist Party is, is going to have to, in some way, right. in some form, address that anger. And
1: thirty seconds left. Uh, What do we hear? What do you expect we'll hear in the short
6: term from President Xi on all this? You know, he's been out and about a little bit more. He's he's been out and about more. Um, uh, There has been, you know, in the initial stages of of the epidemic, they were very reluctant to have Mm. a dialogue with the global medical community. They didn't want the CDC in, uh, even the WHO. They're now starting to open up somewhat. Um, and on the Li Liang doctor story itself, they're obviously trying to co-opt the narrative. They're trying to present him as a hero, mm-hmm. that here's the guy who was on the front lines. He gave his life for this, in the struggle against the coronavirus, talking far, far less, of course, about the suspected yeah. cover-up and about the humiliation and about the censorship uh, right. in the early stages. All right. Well, thought-provoking and disturbing. Thank you so much for bringing us this. Andy Brown,
1: Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right, it's time for the drive to the close. Now, Hillary Kramer is back with us, president and chief investment officer of AG Capital Research, but more importantly, author of a new bestseller. It's called Game Changer Investing: How to Profit from Tomorrow's Billion Dollar Trends. She joins me here in New York City, Taylor Riggs, still with me out in San Francisco. Uh, two things. First, great to see you.
0: Pleasure to be here, Jason. Thank and you. And second, congrats. This is huge. <laughs> uh,
1: love the book. It looks great. Can't wait to read it. Uh, you were nice enough to bring me uh, a copy. So let's start with that if we can. Why this book? Why now?
0: There is such a need to understand the future. Everyone really is busy looking back, you know, mm-hmm. we and not just the thing. I mean, that's kind of getting to be an old conversation. but but just you know cybersecurity and ai and you know driverless cars but the real truth is what does the future really look like and how do you make money off of it where should you really be positioned and and i took all of the the big landscape the macro and said you know what what are the big trends and so therefore where should you be in the future and that took me everywhere from truly personalized therapeutics medications uh, customized to a person's uh, own dna and uh, immunological system is really the future Uh, the personification of pets Everyone knows I love Chewy.com, you know, uh, online uh, (laughs) pet food and uh, uh, pet vet care. Well, because that's the direction that we're going. So that's the reason why now. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, Hillary, so walk me through that because I'm in San Francisco. And so I was surprised (laughs) to hear you say everyone thinks the future is AI, driverless cars, and cybersecurity because I'm in San Francisco and that's what everyone says the future is. So if that's not it, in your opinion, what is it?
0: The future art is the next step beyond. So AI, is AI NVIDIA? So I think maybe that's the better way for me uh, to, to specify it. Yeah, you know, What is AI you know the 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 sort of like usual suspects you know um, or is there is there a next generation coming you know where are we really going to be you, you know the market is just getting very very complacent and 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 a matter of fact on the topic of where we stand and macro the macro environment, just think of coronavirus for a minute um Anything that's software, which means there wouldn't be any kind of issue with touching something, you know, it's it's the opposite of a Royal Caribbean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it just keeps going up. Like, no one seems to care that Intel, you know, I mean, Intel is great company, yes, but the stock keeps rising, but yet it could have supply chain um, disruption. Or you take a company like, like ServiceNow, again, the market has a simple view of the world and, and reacts in that sense and just looks at the players immediately in front of us. ServiceNow with a $210 stock on October 23rd, they make a management change. And Jason, it's about $340 right now, yeah. 342
1: all right, so what else are you looking at in in this market right now? We always love talking names with you.
0: <laughs> I really, I think Goldman Sachs is still the absolute way to go. I think we're going to be even at as three, it
1: feels like every single top executive—I'm exaggerating—seems to be leaving. I mean, they've had this like brain drain over the past couple weeks. Yeah, but You're they have
0: invested. They have invested so much into their people. Yeah. They have understood. They, they they got that whole concept of the war for talent down really well. Of course, everyone's leaving because there's just been so much money sloshing around but you know just think of it this way stocks are at an all-time high you know because interest rates are at an all-time low yeah. even if some you know it seems like nothing can disrupt this market but if indeed it does Goldman Sachs is hedged on every level just, just even in their restructuring, their ability uh, on on M and A, they have really filled the void of the companies that have just shrunk down to nothing. The Barclays, UBS, Deutsche Bank, just yeah, you know, the French game. You know, French banks are just out of the game completely. So I think one could just really do well with a Goldman Sachs. I do worry that I do. This is what I. You, everyone knows I'm this bull. I'm this bull. In my book, I'm standing next to a bull, but at the same time, we're 11 years into this right. bull market, right? So, so, and I and I'm, I am seeing this vicious cycle that could start to happen, which is if if let's say President Trump, you know, is like he's just one thumb thumb pressed away from having a bad tweet let's say and then it looks like bernie sanders and then you know the economy then then people expect it the economy goes down and that's when the algorithms take over basically everyone's going to just pile into the utilities so you want to be in a company like everyone's going to look for safety let me finish my thought everyone's going to look for safety so you want to be in companies that There's safety, but yet there's growth in there. Like, I really do love the utility AES, uh, Virginia based utility. Uh, dividend yield—that's that's nice and consistent, but at the same time, uh, developing the big battery farms and uh, and they're in software, <laughs> uh, demand yeah. response. AES is just a really great one. They've taken their money and made sure to be more than just a regulated utility. People are going to look, of course, Hormel. The concept of spam—that goes without saying. HRL, <laughs> right? Everyone thinks we're going to end up—you know—the market's going to go down. We're going to end up—you know—living in, living in caves. Yeah, yep, yep, right. I mean, yeah, with gold Eating coins. spam.
1: <laughs> that sounds good to you, right, Taylor? You're a big spam eater.
3: <laughs> um, oh, yeah, you know it. Hillary, I want to touch on your idea of risk here. Everyone in portfolio management teaches you, you buy a stock to behave like a stock. You buy a bond to behave like a bond. You don't buy a stock with bond-like characteristics because that's not what it's supposed to do. That's why you
0: have bonds. what is your take on that <laughs> oh, tell the Fed that tell the Fed I, what, what you know five trillion dollars have have gone out of these like negative interest rate you know yielding uh uh, bonds, well, the bottom line is this. The game has changed. Just think of what our Federal Reserve is doing. Okay, we're at 11th year of economic expansion. I called it a bull market, but yet the Fed will do absolute anything possible as if we're in desperate times, as if we're on the brink of an absolute destruction of our, of our, you know, stock exchange, our entire equity system. You know, this whole thing with these repo agreements you hear about, creating liquidity, all of that. The bottom line is everyone's forced into the equity market into the stock market so exactly that point is that classic you know you, I, I I learned at Wharton in the first Jeremy Siegel finance class right. of course but you know stocks for the long run but in this case it may be stocks for the long run and some people are gonna have to wait on returns a few years right. from now
1: all right always good to catch up with you <laughs> Hillary Kramer President Chief Investment Officer of AG Capital Research her new book Game Changer Investing How to Profit from Tomorrow's Billion Dollar Trends. It's a bestseller already. You want to get it. Uh, It's a great, great read. She's one of our smartest uh, analysts on everything stocks. We love having her here. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.